1: scholarship on the state of Christianity in the West, uh, whether it's from theologians or social scientists or historians is uniform in its assertion that historic forms of Christianity are in decline, but the reality of the decline cannot be in doubt. And so uh, it's important that we understand that this is not simply some historical anomaly. It is for the foreseeable future, a settled fact. And while this means many things, one of the things that it means is that even though our neighbors are still wandering, they are not looking for us. And this leads me to to the third reason I find it painful, and it's perhaps the most important, and it's that we're not looking for them.
0: Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons for this weekend on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot. We live in a time of much economic, cultural, and moral chaos. Just following the news, it's just one crisis following another, it seems. So, how should we both as Christians individually, as well as the church corporately, respond? I'm sure you already know this, but what if I were to tell you that this isn't the church's first rodeo in dealing with chaotic times? And historically, the church has dealt with these times in six distinct ways. Gabe, over the next several weeks, we want to hone in on these practices. Tell us about it. Occasionally, we decide to
2: take a little bit of a deeper dive beyond just hearing a talk into the subject matter that's engaged in that talk. And we commission talks that we think are critical for us to hear. If you've been around Q, you know that part of what we're constantly assessing is what is the cultural moment we're living in and what does it mean for us to be faithful and how we respond to that. And so that applies to several different things we've talked about over the years at Q, the first being understanding the dynamic of the seven channels of cultural influence, that every Christian, not just pastors, are called to be on mission, that we're to be spreading the love of Jesus into every area of culture. And that's not just supposed to be in word, but in the kind of culture we're creating, the kind of things we're cultivating, the kind of virtue that we're trying to promote. The seven channels of culture have given us a nomenclature to use that helps every Christian kind of place themselves in the world and understand how God might want to use them as part of his mission to renew the world. You know, we also talk a lot about current issues. We, we think Christians should be the most informed, knowledgeable, uh, in understanding the current questions that your neighbors are asking, that your friends are talking about, that your colleagues are dealing with, that those of you as parents are trying to work through with your children. And so a lot of our work and the books that I've written have worked on this entire concept of what does it mean for us to engage current issues, to be faithful in the midst of that. And so the conversation we're embarking on today takes all of this one step deeper to say, what does it mean for the church to be faithful in the midst of a cultural moment where we're experiencing a lot of change? We believe the church is called to be a counterculture for the common good. Well, what does it mean to live out a countercultural faith? And, and certainly there has to be rooting to this that goes far beyond just our current moment. And so that's where we're going to go. We're going to go into history. We're going to understand historically how the church has remained faithful, no matter what kind of culture it lived in, whether it was a modernist contemporary culture or pre-modern and ancient culture, what are the practices that are consistent? And I couldn't be more thrilled about the person who is helping us do this. This is Dr. Greg Thompson, who will be delivering portions of this talk, and then he and I in studio are having this conversation where together we're going to unpack this. And Greg Thompson has worked for a number of years in both faith-based and community development organizations, so he understands kind of the two sides of this coin, uh, he currently serves as a research fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia, a recognized institution that really does help think about cultures, how they change, and the sociology behind that and currently is executive director of New City Commons, a research and consulting team that equips civic leaders for the work of nurturing thriving communities. So, I want us to just jump in and listen to the beginning of this talk, and we 're going to continue this conversation and begin digging in to what does it mean for us to be faithful in our cultural moment.
1: Beautiful, uh, if burdensome, responsibilities in the Christian church in every single age is the responsibility to reimagine uh, the faithfulness of its own presence. Now, I say that it's burdensome because it actually requires us to look honestly at ourselves. And it also requires us to look honestly at this age, at, at the intellectual sources of our age and at the institutional structures of our age and all the individual experiences that we have. So it's, it's a burden, but it's also beautiful. And it's important that we know that because in, in understanding ourselves, we get to learn again what God has made of us and what he has yet to make of us. And in understanding our age, we get to learn again uh, what God has made of, of the world and what he has yet to make of the world. And when we see these things, the kind of gorgeous outlines of a reimagined Christian faithfulness begin to come into view. And what I want to do is I want to step into this burdensome and beautiful work of reimagining faithful Christian presence in our own time. And I want to ask you to join with me, and and here's how. I want you to imagine a woman. Let's say she lived sometime between the the 2nd century and and the 16th century. And let's let's say she lived somewhere, generally speaking, in the region uh, of the Mediterranean. Now I want you to imagine that she is, out of some terrible necessity, obliged to make her uh, her way on a journey across the remoteness of that world. As she steps onto her path and she bends her long and lonely course uh, towards whatever town or village or city held her hopes, in all likelihood she spent her days scanning the horizon for one thing. Do you know what it is? A church. See, sometimes these churches were huge cathedrals. Um, They were rising up in stone and they were filled with light. Uh, Sometimes they were small little parishes tucked away and and roads that some of you have seen and filled with intimacy and warmth. And sometimes they were monasteries. But no matter uh, which kind of church it was, all of them shared a common vocation. And here's what it was, to be the faithful presence of love in their time. To be the faithful presence of love in their time. And this is why she would look for a church. Because of all the things that she could know about the church, the one thing that she would certainly know, and that most people did know, was that the church was a place whose very purpose was to be a light in the darkness, was to be a rest for the restless. So it was, its purpose was to be a presence in all the absences of the world. Now, in fact, most of these churches, they had these codes for how you would receive travelers when they came to you. And I want to read one of my favorites. Okay. This comes from the Benedictine rule, which was written in the sixth century. All guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ for he himself will say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And once a guest has been announced, the superior and the brothers or sisters are to meet with him with all the courtesy of love. The abbot shall pour water on the hands of the guests. And the abbot with the entire community shall wash their feet. Great care and concern are to be shown in receiving poor people and pilgrims. Because in them more particularly is Christ received. This is an amazing passage and an amazing document. But there are so many others like this. And all of them are bearing witness to the the conviction that the church's vocation is to be a presence in the absences of the world. Now in our time, it it might be difficult to imagine the forms of absence that were experienced um, by this woman. And by the hundreds of thousands of men and women and children, it would just just like her, but I, w- I want you to try. Some who were hungry were driven by the absence of food. Others, uh, diseased were driven by the absence of care. Some exploited were driven by the absence of justice. Some who were sinners were driven by the absence of grace. Can you see those people making their way and looking for us? And in finding us, what did they find? On the one hand, they found very personal care, this careful attention to the most intimate needs that human beings have. I I want you to think about this because in our lighted windows, they found the consolation of knowing that they weren't alone. In our open doors, they found the sound and the presence of welcome. In our embrace, they found the, the return of their dignity. In our kitchens, they found fullness and joy. Think about it, warm bread, stew, the gladness of wine. Inside our walls, inside our rooms, they found the repose of rest. And in our farewells, they found warmer clothes and heavier bags and the benedictions of God for them on their journey. That's what they found. They found very personal care. But they also found public concern. And this is important to understand because when they came to churches, what they found were communities of men and women who were concerned not just for individuals, but for entire cities. It's our brothers and sisters who began to invent and nurture systems of the moral and intellectual formation of children who began to develop structures of economics and of law, who began to create art and music for the the good of all of their neighbors, I want you to try to see our brothers and sisters as they gave themselves, you know, in kitchen and in chapel, in courtroom and in court square to this work of being the presence of love. Now, as somebody who is a Christian, when I think back on these early stories and I think of all of our brothers and sisters who welcomed them in love, I have to tell you, I find it almost indescribably beautiful. But I also find it incredibly painful. Do you know why? First, because our neighbors are still wandering. Hundreds of millions of our neighbors still continue to wander in search of food, in search of shelter, in search of justice, in search of grace. These ancient pilgrimages still continue among us. But in another sense, it's a very new wandering, and it's important that we understand this. Because we live in a new age in which there's deep ambivalence about the nature of reality, deep anxiety about the possibility of our life together in our societies. The age that we live in is no longer an age in which we simply wander down dark roads in the shadows worried about bandits. This is an age in which we wander through an abyss of meaninglessness with incredible forces of political and economic and technological power threatening us at every moment. Ours is an age whose paths are more treacherous and whose powers are much more menacing than anything those early pilgrims ever saw. And so I find it painful because our neighbors are still wandering all these years later as they wander they are not looking for us. Scholarship on the state of Christianity in the West, uh, whether it's from theologians or social scientists or historians, is uniform in its assertion that historic forms of Christianity are in decline. I mean, and of course, the pace and the degree of that decline are different in different states and different parts of the of the West. But the reality of the decline cannot be in doubt, and so uh, it's important that we understand that this is not simply some historical anomaly. And while this means many things, one of the things that it means is that even though our neighbors are still wandering, they are not looking for us. And this leads me to to the third reason I find it painful, that we're not looking for them. See, See, one of the effects of the shift in culture that I've just described is that the Christian church in the West, especially in the largely white Protestant expression of that church, which has been so identified with the West, has been driven into a form of an identity crisis. I mean, and this is totally understandable, right? I mean, this is a community who understood itself as a conscious majority, who, whose vision was widely shared, whose influence was widely felt and sought, whose goals were widely pursued and embraced. But now that community is being asked to live self-consciously as a minority community, whose vision is widely ignored, whose influence is obviously in decline, and whose goals are widely held in derision. And one of the effects of this identity crisis is that the church has begun to think disproportionately about itself, about its own experience of this age rather than its neighbors. And so some fearing this age have withdrawn from it, seek to withdraw from it into these communities, these fortified communities of ritualized fear. Others resenting this age are now setting themselves against it in this struggle for cultural domination. And still other churches Misapprehending both the perils and the promise of this age are simply embracing it and celebrating their enlightenment while their neighbors slip into the dark. And this is why these early accounts are so painful to me because our neighbors are wandering and they are not looking for us. And it is not entirely clear to me that we are looking for them. And if that's true, then that means that the one community whose purpose is to be a presence in this world is in danger of becoming an absence. And so when I look back on these accounts, I see beauty, I see pain. But I also see hope, and it's important that, that you see it as well. And here's why because God loves this world. And because God loves this world, He has promised to be present in every single age of this world, including this age. And He has promised to be present through you, through His church. And so, what that means is, as we begin the work and take up this work of reassessing and reimagining the nature of Christian faithfulness in our own time, we can do so with the hope that our labors are not in vain. And that's why we're here. So what's it gonna mean? What's it gonna mean for us to become this presence of love in in, in our own age? And in my my own life, I found this this question to be overwhelming because I know that that it's gonna mean so many things. It's gonna require so many things of me just as it is of you.
2: Greg, this was a powerful talk. I mean, just right from the top, I love how you just took us back to history. And and really, you know, my imagination was fired, trying to reimagine the moment and reimagine the woman who's in search of something and wandering. And I mean, you really took us down a lot of paths that I want to get into with you. But first
1: of all, just welcome. Thank Thank you you for being with us for this. I'm so happy to be here and to continue talking about these things we've been talking about for a long time.
2: And I've learned so much from you and your approach and how you're thinking about things. Safe to say you've mentored me and helped me and form my imagination about the future, about what it means to be faithful. And so I think it's exciting for all of us to just get to engage this at a deeper level and just pause and take a few moments to dig in to what you're uncovering here. And, And the first thing I just want to point out is you use some new language that people just aren't used to thinking about when it comes to the church, you know, the idea of being a faithful presence, the idea of the absence in the presence, you know, and trying to, like, get our head around beauty and burdens around what it means to be a Christian. And I love that because it starts to open up for people, maybe a new realm of thinking about all of this that they're not used to hearing. And I think that's going to be fun.
1: Well, thanks. You know, I mean, I think a lot of this comes, Gabe, from the fact that everything that we're doing and thinking together is built around the incarnate Jesus who (laughs) made his life present in the world and came so that the world would have a life. So everything we're doing is basically an extended meditation on what it means to follow him. You use this phrase that I love, and we'll come back to this a lot, but that
2: we're called as a church to be a faithful presence of love. What does that mean to you, the idea of a faithful
1: presence of love in our time? Everybody's trying to ask, what does it mean to live in the world well? What does it mean to love our neighbors, to give ourselves for their good? And so when I talk about being a faithful presence, I mean the, the faithful part is living out this expression as Orthodox Christians following Jesus in the world. That That's the faithful part. We want to cling to what is true, what the church confesses. But we want to do that as a presence. Like we want to be present in the world with our neighbors, for our neighbors, and holding those two things together. And it's important to add that faithful presence of love because it means that we're not here to to triumph over our neighbors. We're not here to dominate them. We're here to love them, to bear witness to God's love for them and our love for God. So I think holding the the faithfulness, the presence, and the love together is a really critical way of approaching this whole thing. Yeah,
2: and early on in the life of Q, I mean, we Andy Crouch gave one of the first talks that ever took place at a Q over a decade ago. And and I know for a lot of people, it began their imagination on this front to realize you don't shape culture by critiquing it or condemning it or combating it, really, you or consuming it, which is what a lot of us do, thinking uh, we're doing something good. The reality is you're going to have to create culture. And, I, and this follows along that path of thinking, is that what is the kind of culture we want to create? Is it one of based on fear about the world that's changing, or is it one that wants to offer something to this world as beautiful? And I want us to just jump into the illustration you use, though, because that captures my imagination. I'm sure for many listeners it captured th- theirs, too. Thinking about the Benedictine rule and how this took place where they would welcome travelers. Will you just describe
1: a little more color to that picture of what this might have looked like? Well, it's a wonderful and fascinating story. So imagine, I'm going to take you back a little further, uh, you're in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire is, is living as a Christian empire, and and people were really trying to build this city of love back in Rome with Constantine. It was like God's love made manifest in the world. Well, that falls apart, as Augustine <laughs> later writes about. It's like, okay, maybe Rome was not it. So all these men and women flee into the desert, and they're like, we're going to establish these new cities of love. They're called the Desert Fathers and Mothers, These these monastic communities where we live together, where we welcome people and embrace them in God's name and also serve them. Well, eventually, these people began to move into all these cities throughout the world, and they began to start these little communities that we call monasteries. And the purpose of those monasteries was, on the one hand, to be these places where people could come, they could grow, they could live, they could dwell, they would build their lives around intimate communion with God. And you hear that in song and liturgy and prayer and work. But at the same time, they were trying to not just be these little walled-off communities. They were building the infrastructure of their cities. They were creating new economic systems. They, I mean, they were building school systems. They were starting hospitals. So this idea was if you were just out living in you know, the Middle Ages in some village, you knew that there was a group of people that existed there and their whole purpose was to love God and to love you. Yeah, and they were bringing life yeah, to that's exactly to right. their
2: city and to their community and blessing them and it was a huge part of just the functional way that everything would operate within a
1: That's exactly right. within
2: a city. But but I love this idea of how they were called to welcome a stranger that this was just part of the practice that, was it the porter? Yeah, that the porter. Stand? Right, tell, exactly tell us right. about the porter.
1: Yeah, so the porter is one of the brothers or sisters who lives in the monastery, and their whole job was to be a person in the community that was looking out for the stranger outside. You know, because people are in these monasteries, they're working, they're praying, they're writing, but somebody needs to always be looking out for the neighbor. And so the job of the porter was to be the lookout and say, there's somebody that's coming how can we help them how can we serve them well and i think it's good for us to get reacquainted with this history because you know in
2: the modern day church we're not really set up that way you know right church right. is something for most people that means a place they go show up on a sunday morning so they can be fed but this idea of the church being this presence in the middle of the culture that's right and serving it and loving it i think for a lot of us we can't even get our heads around that and that's why i love the story i love for us to kind of dip way back in history and and let's reimagine recover understand sort of what was motivating that kind of action so that we can then try to apply that to today and go well, now what in the world would that look like now where maybe you're not living in a monastery right. uh, you're living in a neighborhood or you're you're practicing your faith uh, you know in your vocation uh, and it looks very different maybe contextually right. functionally right. but it doesn't look different in principle.
1: I think that's right. I mean, and the thing is, there are all kinds of contemporary examples right now. And it's people that we know, people who say, we're going to move into this neighborhood on purpose. We're going to build our lives here. We're going to welcome our neighbor's kids. We're going to keep an eye out for them. We're going to work in our school system. We're going to do all these things. It's people who live in a place on purpose for the sake of caring for their neighbors and helping them thrive. It's a beautiful image, and it's also a way of their, that we express our lives with God. The love of neighbor and the love of God were conjoined in the monastic vision. They were they were twinned, and you, could, you couldn't really separate them. And I think that's a very beautiful thing that we, we do have to recover. This isn't just a beautiful
2: portrait, but now as you think about it, it's become painful to think about it because you recognize some things have changed. This isn't the way the dominant church is thinking about its role— and it's also not the way the neighbors who are looking for these kinds of beauty and these kinds of expressions of love, they're not finding it in the church.
1: Well, you know, I, I use the language of grief, uh, and I think it is um, – a lot of this has come from my own failures in this regard. And in living in, alongside my neighbors, realizing the kind of deep pain and deep struggle they continue to have, you know, I mentioned in the talk – that our neighbors are continuing to wander, but now the the forces arrayed against them and their children are so much more menacing, so many, so much more complex. It was a grief to me that that many many people don't imagine the place, the church, as a place where they could find love or welcome, where somebody would actually be willing to help them and desire to serve them. Uh, and that that is something that I deeply am, am, am deeply interested in seeing change. And I will say that personally, for a long time, I don't think I was actually looking for my neighbors. I was so self-absorbed, so anxious about what it meant to be a Christian and, and how to survive, that the, the idea that my neighbors were out there laboring for their own survival and that my my job was to labor with and for them on their behalf, that was a huge turning point for me that I really learned from these these early Christian communities and, frankly, from some of the minority Christian communities that, that exist today where I, I really learned that. I think most of us feel the complexity of our, of our time with pluralization, all kinds of encounters and disruption that people feel just by having neighbors that are really different than they are, that this is globalized. Now we're connected with all these global systems, and what happens in one country can absolutely prof- and profoundly shape the economic future of an entire generation of another country. And Those kind of interconnections where you don't have control, the poor especially are extremely vulnerable, and all of us feel this vulnerability right now, and I think that the church— rather than thinking so much about its own survival and exuding such anxiety about what's going to happen to it, ought to be the community that's thinking about its neighbor and thinking like, what's going to happen to them? And how can we we love them? You're talking about you and I going through this process. One of the humiliations for me is there's something embarrassing about basically having to learn what faithful Christians have been doing for like a really long time, and, uh, and it's just occurring to some of us, right? Right, right. Um, and I think that if we can acknowledge that not all the criticisms of the faith community are just ideologically motivated. A lot of them are real and true. We can, and we can inhabit images like this and stories like this with our neighbors. We can reimagine the role of faith communities altogether.
2: As we kind of move into uh, concluding this episode and thinking about where we're going with this conversation. Give give our listeners a sense of why you believe it's going to be worth sticking around for these next six episodes where we kind of unpack these practices and and why you're hopeful about the future. Well,
1: that's a great question. And it basically comes down to this for me. Jesus Christ is present in the world in this age. He's not asking us to go do something new. We are following him into an age that he loves. So I have utter hope about the capacity of the church to love God and love its neighbor because Christ is our life and he is here. And so I think everything that we're doing is predicated upon the fact that Jesus is present and is not absent and there's not one place in any city of this world where he isn't there in love. And so that means that we're not making this up or discerning a path that's been set before us. And that is extremely exciting to me.
2: I hope you can tell from this beginning conversation that there's so much more to talk about. There's so much more that we need to discover and remember and recover about what it means to be the church. I hope you also heard from Greg just a sense of humility that this isn't something that we have figured out. It's not something he's figured out and we're all dialed in on and we're trying to just tell other people exactly what to go do. But it's saying, no, this is an important conversation together. We've got to work through as Christians, as those who care about our culture care about faithfulness, but must always guard against a reaction of fear to the change that's in front of us, and instead must respond with hope and joy and recognizing that God's still at work in this world, and he's actually counting on his church to lead forward. But how will we do that? Well, on these next episodes, we're going to go into six different practices that the church always comes back to. And for some of you, it's going to be the first time you've even considered that this was a practice of the church. This is the way the church has always existed and always tried to practice faithfulness.
0: That's right, Gabe. And again, we'll continue the series next week here on Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. The six practices of the church, you know, really is a foundational series of talks to the Q community. And maybe as you listen, you want to bring others into the conversation, maybe some friends or members at your church. Well, recently, Q Ideas launched a new platform called Q Media. It's a curated place where you can not only watch past Q Talks, but listen to podcasts, see documentaries, and more. Plus, as you listen to the talks by yourself or with others, there's discussion questions where you can think well through what you've heard. To learn more about Q Media and to get registered, visit QIdeas.org. I'm Paul Perot. Hope you join us next time for more of Greg Thompson's series on the six practices of the church. On behalf of Gabe and the Q team, thanks for listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Have a great week.
2: This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media.
0: Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.